Good to uh, be back with you. I would tell you that I missed you last week. That'd be a lie. I was with my children and grandchildren. I didn't miss you for a minute. I did. I always miss you guys. Well, glad you're here this morning on this Labor Day weekend. Thank for those in the venue joining us and also uh, online. After about a five-month pause, we are returning to the book of Genesis. You may remember we spent 12 weeks from uh, January through March of this year looking at the origins of man and, and the beginnings of civilization. And let's just kind of go through, and you can follow me in your copy of God's Word. Let's just kind of go through and remember um, what we have learned from Genesis so far as we jump back in this morning. You remember we began in Genesis 1 and 2 with the creation account, the creation of man. Uh, we gained a biblical understanding of God making man in his image and God creating them male and female, giving them dominion over the earth. Genesis 3, we saw the rebellion of Adam and Eve, the uh, brokenness that brought in their fellowship with God and, of course, with each other, the seeds of uh, mistrust um, that were sown because of that, the curse on the man, on the woman, on the serpent, the promise of redemption to come in the future, but the consequences of sin that occurred because of what they had done, being expelled from the garden and having a broken relationship, being expelled from the presence of God. Chapter 4, um, we saw the increasing effects of sin with uh, Cain murdering his brother Abel. We traced the lineage of Cain in chapter 4 and saw that man was becoming increasingly wicked. Uh, chapter 5 was kind of a breath of fresh air. We, we were introduced to the line of Seth. You remember that Seth was born to Adam and Eve after Cain had, uh, had killed Abel. Then Seth was born to Adam and Eve, and, and Seth was, uh, was a righteous man, and he began a godly line through whom ultimately Messiah would come. Uh, from the line of Seth, one particular man that immediately uh, showed himself to be righteous was Noah. And we saw that God looked and saw Noah was righteous. Chapter 6 and 7 focused on God's judgment that was coming. God looked and saw that man was increasingly wicked, and so he planned to judge them. In chapter 6 and 7, you see the account of the flood, uh, the preparation of Noah's family for that time that God had told them what to do because he was going to spare them, the preaching of righteousness that occurred through those years, and then the protection of Noah and his family and the animals as they entered the ark and were sealed in by the hand of God. In uh, chapter 8, um, you see following the destruction of the flood, the flood occurred in 6 and 7, following all that destruction of every living creature on the earth, with the exception of those in the ark, the waters receded, the ark came to rest, and at the proper time, God instructed Noah and his family to, to disembark. And the first thing that Noah does when he uh, disembarks from the ark is he makes a lavish sacrifice. He builds an altar, makes a very lavish sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, that sacrifice was to serve as a reminder to Noah and his family, a reminder that they too were sinners in need of of forgiveness and grace. They had not been spared because they were perfect people. They had not been spared because they had, were the only ones who would not sinned against God. They were just the ones that God chose because of their righteous lives, but they need to be reminded that they needed forgiveness and they needed to repent. And it was a reminder that God had spared them from his judgment. And then you see in, in uh, chapter 8 there is Noah made the sacrifice. This was a burnt sacrifice. Well, you could say all sacrifices are burnt sacrifices, but Burnt sacrifice means it was completely uh, consumed by the fire. And a burnt sacrifice was for the purpose of renewing relationship with God. 
and that sacrifice was completely uh, consecrated to God and committed to God. And that was a reminder to them that they were to give themselves completely to the Lord in the way that they lived life before him and for him. They were to give themselves completely to the Lord and to be completely devoted to him. You notice in chapter 8, after the sacrifice, that was when God promised that as long as the earth remained, he would not curse the ground and not destroy all living creatures. You know, even as God made that promise to Noah, God knew that man would continue to sin and continue to do evil. Now, we do know another judgment is coming. God promised he wouldn't curse the ground or destroy every living creature as long as the earth remained, but another judgment is coming when the earth itself is going to be destroyed. Uh, until then, God continues to be patient with man. He continues to give man time and opportunity to turn to him. Uh, a lot of people wonder in our day and age, well, how much longer is the Lord going to tarry? We don't know, but the reason he tarries is to give people, to give men the opportunity to repent and return to him. And by the way, we would call this era of time that we live in, the time post-flood until the time when the earth will be destroyed, we would call this the age of grace. Uh, we are living in and experiencing the grace of God, and, and I would say to you, we're quite possibly nearing the end of the age of grace. For 4,500 years now, God has been patient, God has been forbearing, but that's not going to last forever, so we need to be careful. We don't presume on the age of grace and how long it's going to last. Chapter 9, God blesses Noah, his sons, and their wives. He repeats the instruction that he gave Adam to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. He reminds them that man is to have dominion. At just as he told Adam and Eve, but something new in chapter 9 is they're now given the animals for food. They had not before been allowed to eat the animals. They were basically vegetarians, I guess you would say, but now they are given the animals for food. And in chapter 9, God sets the rainbow in the sky, that reminder that he's not going to destroy the earth by flood again. You know, and as, as descendants of Noah, which, which we are living in the church age, the reminder is the rainbow's more than a reminder that there's not going to be another global flood. It's a reminder to us of how patient God is, that he patiently waits, not wanting any to perish. He's, he's withholding his judgment, allowing more time for the gospel to go out to a sinful world. See, the world deserves judgment. The world deserves uh, immediate judgment, but for now, God has chosen to give us grace and mercy even though we deserve judgment. And for us, that means is we have time to complete the task that we've been given of getting the gospel to all nations. We need to keep in mind there is a final judgment. There is wrath to come. The entire universe, the Bible tells us, is going to be destroyed by fire. And those who have not repented, those who have not returned, uh, returned to Christ, uh, will be in judgment forever. And when we see a rainbow, it's just a reminder of God's hand of grace on us, and we need to remember that grace will not last forever. Also in chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, he goes on to tell us the earth is going to be repopulated by the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 9 records Noah's sin and the consequence of the curse of Canaan, uh, the, the son of Ham. Uh, Canaan is cursed. The people who be the descendants of Ham, Ham, descendants of Canaan, are cursed. But Shem and Japheth are blessed, and their descendants are blessed. Ultimately, what's going to happen is Shem will be lord over Canaan. Uh, the Canaanites developed into a very wicked people. We know that 
further on in Genesis and in the book of Exodus. They're involved in idolatry. They're involved in child sacrifice. They're basically slaves to pagan gods. That's the Canaanites, the descendants of Ham and Canaan. Shem's descendants become the, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. So we know when the blessing was given that Shem would be lord over Canaan, uh, Shem, the descendants of Shem, the Israelites, are going to conquer the land of Canaan. And then from the uh, line of Shem, we're going to get to today, Abraham uh, is from that line, the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel. And, and the bottom line here is that from righteousness comes great blessing that God is going to pour on these people. Chapter, uh, chapter 10 is basically, it looks like a long genealogy, but it's, a, it's an explanation or a record of the movement of the sons of Noah and their descendants moving all over the earth, forming different groups, different languages. Chapter 11 tells us why that happened. It was the act of rebellion um, that caused the dispersion of the peoples. And, and the act of rebellion in Genesis 11 is, is astounding. It's, it's kind of like, um, it's not like your child quietly disobeying or doing something behind your back. It's like you telling your child, I want you to do this and then looking you in the eye and doing exactly the opposite. That's what's happening in, in chapter 11. God made clear that they were to fill the earth, they were to, to scatter, to populate the entire world, not just one little corner, but the descendants of Noah, the descendants of Shem and Ham and Japheth decided they know best. They're going to they're gonna stay together. They're going to stay put in this one part of the world. If you look in chapter 11, verse 4, it tells us they decide to build a city lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth and a tower to make a name for ourselves. They, they knew that God had commanded that they be dispersed, but they decided they thought they were wiser than God. They decided it'd be better to stay together than to be scattered abroad. You know, you stop and think for just a minute. I wonder how often today God gives us instructions individually and, and corporately, but we decide maybe we know better. And it never, ever turns out for good. It doesn't ever work out well. So God sees what they're doing. Of course, he sees what they're doing. He's God. He sees they're one people. They have one language. Verse 6, he says, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. Now, God's not saying there, um, if I leave them alone, man can accomplish anything. They're not going to build a tower to heaven. They're not going to do that. What God is saying here is if I leave them alone or if this rebellion goes unchecked, there'll be no end to the evil that man is capable of. There's no sin he won't attempt. And let's be honest, if you look through history, it's clear um, that man has the ability uh, of limitless evil. Now, that's where we were in the spring. So, so far, what we've seen in Genesis is a loving God who created man for relationship with him. He wanted a, a people for himself, but over and over again, man turned from God, man rebelled, and became increasingly wicked. Now, let me mention God's purpose in, in writing the scripture, in, in having men write down the scripture that we now hold in our hands, our Bible, God's purpose was not to record the wickedness of man. The purpose of scripture is to tell us about God himself. God gave us the scriptures to tell us about himself. He's, he's the main character in the story. The, the Bible is his story. It's not our story. It's not man's story. It's not our history. It's his story. It's, it's his history. He's the subject, and he's the main character, and he's the, the starring actor. And the theme of the Bible is mercy and grace. 
God gave us the Bible to tell us about himself, and God gave us the Bible so that we would know about his mercy and grace. And if you want to know what the primary action of the Bible is, it's his redemptive work in dealing with men. Over and over we see that through Scripture that God is continually redeeming and working to redeem man. From the first verse of Genesis to the last verse of Revelation, there's this thread of redemption that runs through and connects every account in Scripture. And that's what I wanted you to see this morning before we move on uh, in Genesis, is that, that thread of redemption. Adam and Eve sinned. At the point of their sin, although they were judged, although there was consequence, you saw the promise of redemption. Through the flood, God destroyed sinful humanity, but even in that destruction of sinful humanity, there was a threat of redemption. Noah, who was a righteous man and his family, were spared. And when God, when the flood was over and God had them come off the ark, he gave them the same instruction to repopulate the earth, the same instruction he gave Adam and Eve. He'd not given up on humanity. There was still that threat of redemption. In Genesis chapter 11, the rebellion at Babel was a clear indication that mankind was again becoming wicked. It's almost as if they had not learned. They're becoming wicked again. And I would say it's even possible um, from what you read in Scripture, they were even more evil than at the time of the flood. Well, what's God going to do? He had promised he wasn't going to destroy all the living creatures, but he certainly at that moment could have turned his back on creation and just let man and all his wickedness self-destruct. Listen, God is under no moral obligation to, rec- to, to uh, redeem us from our evil. He's not obligated to do that, not at all. And yet over and over and over again, we see that he continually pursues and continually redeems. Even, even amid um, the rebellion at Babel, there's a threat of redemption for mankind. What is it? Well, it's that God had chosen a man and God was setting aside a, a future people group who would bless all peoples. And through this man and through these people, that would be the means that the entire world would hear the message of the one true creator God. Through this man and through these people, the Messiah would come, and all those who believed in him and all those who received him would be saved. What about the man? The man who, through whom the blessing would come was chosen by God to receive God's grace, not that he was worthy of it, he was chosen by God to be the foundation or the, the father of a new nation and, and a people of faith. And beginning this morning in Genesis 12, we're going to embark on the story of a great journey of faith over the next several weeks. And it's the story of Abram. You and I know him as Abraham, and I will try to keep it straight until we get to Abraham. But it's the story of Abram. And it's full of encouragement and full of exhortation for us in, in living by faith and walking with God and, and being able to see God's miraculous hand. And we're going to pick up the narrative this morning. We're going to back up a little bit into chapter 11 and pick up the narrative in chapter 11, verse 27, and read through chapter 12, verse 9. And as you're turning there, let me remind you again, the thread of redemption runs through all time, even into our time as well. In spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our wickedness, God calls and God invites us to come. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. 
Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, and with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Well, we know him by the name Abraham, but he was born Abram. For 99 years he went uh, by his birth name, that was the name Abram, which meant exalted father. Until when he was 99, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, and God changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of many. Abram was born around uh, 2000 B.C. He lived in Ur. Ur was a, a thriving, uh, bustling, well-cultured city, also known as Ur of the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans, uh, that land where they live, uh, is also referred to as Mesopotamia. Now, you probably, um, well, I don't know about currently, but in the past, in history, you would have studied Mesopotamia. It was the, the cradle of civilization. It was the area where people first gathered into cities and, and established societies. If you looked at a map today, it would be in the location uh, of modern-day Iraq. Abram's name, exalted father, was likely given to pay homage to the primary deity worshipped by the people of Mesopotamia. Uh, they worshipped many deities, but the primary one or the the, uh, the ruling deity was the moon god, Sin. Uh, if you look over in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2, Joshua's about to pass from the scene. He's renewing uh, God's covenant with his people, and he's reminding them of their past and how they got where they are. And in Joshua 24, 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates and Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now, we don't know, Terah's Abram's father, we don't know the extent of Abram's idolatry. Uh, we believe because he grew up in his father's house and around uh, relatives and neighbors who were idol worshipers, it's likely Abram had some involvement in idol worship. And so you might wonder, well, why, why then did God choose him? Well, let's remember a couple of things. One is, you have the righteous line of Seth. Uh, Seth, the third son born to Adam. Uh, Seth, the one that God was going to use through his line. God was going to bless those who are righteous. So from the line of Seth, extending down through Shem, the son of Noah, the one who was blessed and told that he would rule over Canaan, 
through that line, you get through to Terah and his son Abram. Now, why is that, why is that important to understand and know that lineage? Well, um, we know that while they had drifted from the worship of the one true God, they knew who Yahweh was. And it was unlikely that they had completely stopped worshiping him. What they had done was begin to worship other idols uh, alongside, and so they had not been faithful to, to God alone. And I say that to say this, Abram knew the creator God. He was at least acquainted with him or, or knew something of him, but it was purely an act of grace that God called Abram out of his idolatry. Abram didn't, didn't earn that. He wasn't worthy of divine mercy. He hadn't done anything to ingratiate himself, to deserve God's favor. God simply, by his grace, by his sovereignty and by his grace, called Abram and called Abram to, to follow him and promised that he would bless him and make him a blessing. Now, we know from the testimony of Stephen, you remember when Stephen was martyred, um, he gave testimony before he was martyred from Stephen's testimony in, in Acts chapter 7. God appeared to Abram and called him out of Ur in Mesopotamia. That's when Abram initially received that calling. And in chapter 11, 31 and 32, you see that Terah and Abram departed from their country from Ur to head to Canaan. Now, they didn't know they were going to Canaan. Abram just was told, hey, you need, you need to leave. Leave your father, your kindred, your father's household, leave your country and go to a land that I will show you. I just want to mention to you this morning that, that Terah and, and Abram didn't decide to move because they didn't like their home place anymore. They, they didn't make the decision to move because they were nomads and they just had it in their blood to move around a lot. They weren't running from a situation. They weren't running from a situation or from a person. The reason they moved was because Abram had been directly commanded by God to leave his country, to leave his kindred, to leave his father's house. And he obeyed. He heard what God said, he heard the call of God, and he simply obeyed. Now, we don't know exactly, but Abram may have been uh, around the age of 70 when they left Ur. If you remember from the story, Sarah was about 10 years younger. That would put her at around 60. Now, imagine you're Abram. You've lived your whole life in one place. You, you've established yourself in this city, in this, in this society, in this culture. You've been in the same community, and you've been around immediate family since birth. You, you know who Yahweh is, but now you've had a personal experience where he makes himself known to you. And he tells you to pack up, and he tells you to leave it all behind and to go. Just, just go. Headed to some undisclosed location, but just go. So you're Abram, and God has appeared to you, and God has told you this. Do you want to have this conversation with your wife? Think about the neighbors. Maybe, maybe a next-door neighbor or uh, the neighbor across the street notices that you're thinning out your possessions, you're selling stuff, you're, you're giving stuff to goodwill. They notice you've got a lot of boxes in your garage and you're packing everything up in boxes. And, and so your neighbor comes over and says, hey, I, I see you're packing up. Are you guys moving to a bigger house in town? No. What, what are y'all doing? We're leaving. Really? Yeah, in just a few days. Well, you know, I, I'm surprised that at your age that you would be moving and starting over. Yeah, we're, we're moving and starting over. In fact, we're, we're taking my father, Tara. He's, he's going with us. Oh, so where are you going? I don't know. Let me, let me get this straight. You guys are, are selling out. You're packing up. 
You don't even know where you're going. Have you lost your mind? Now listen, moving in that day was a whole lot different than today. And Just starting off and going to a place where you don't know and traveling through areas where you don't know, all kind of things could happen to you. But Abram followed the call of God. You know, anytime you step out in faith, there are going to be people around you, even believers, there are going to be people around you who, who don't understand. But when God calls, we want his blessing, we, we respond. We respond in faith. Let me, let me wrap it up this morning, and we'll get into more of this next week, but let me wrap it up this morning with the first three words of verse 4. These ought to just ring in our ears and resonate in our hearts when we think about our own walk with God. You see the first three words of verse 4? Why don't you say them with me? So Abram went. He went. You don't see a lot of questioning. You don't see a lot of planning, plotting, trying to figure things out. Abram went. You know, the journey of faith that we're going to follow here in Genesis was a long journey for Abram. Long journey. But it, it began with this first step. Abram's considered the, the father of our faith because he obeyed the calling of God. Now, now think about it again from his perspective. Abram was middle-aged. I know we don't consider 70 to 75 middle-aged, but for a guy that lived to be 175, he was middle-aged. He's middle-aged. He's, he's somewhat prosperous. He's settled. He's happy with his station in life. And then God comes to him and, and calls him and tells him to leave all that behind and to go. What does he do? He, he responds by faith. He obediently leaves everything to follow God's plan. You know, that thread of redemption still runs through to our day today. God calls us. He calls us to saving faith. He calls us to, to serve him. You, you might be here this morning, you're a teacher or doctor or lawyer or clerk or salesperson or laborer. That, that's, that's not who you are if you're a child of God. That may be what you do. That may be the, the, the job or vocation he's given you, but that's not primarily what you're here for. You're here to follow the calling of God, to walk with God by faith. God called Abram, and Abram didn't look around at all that he had and didn't consider his relationships and didn't consider his place in the city. He went. And that began an incredible journey of faith and blessing and the story of Abram has been placed in Scripture for God to see that still today he calls. And for those who follow, he blesses. It's not always an easy journey. There are a lot of bumps along the way. But God calls, and we choose whether to obey and to go or whether to sit back in doubt and in fear and miss the blessing of God.